worship with a reading from Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are un, un, I'm sorry, who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. And for the sake of your goodness, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Welcome to church, team. Glad you're here. All right, it's my joy um, today to hand off the baton uh, to Larry. He's going to bring the word um, to us today. Larry, come on up. Give him a hand. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Larry Bowman. He's already introduced me. But uh, my claim to fame is I'm married to Mary Bowman. And uh, she indeed is the, the best half of this relationship. She makes me shine. So, well, thank you. Um, you may or may not know this, but the church has a financial team. The financial team is charged with bringing accountability to the church in the area of finances. And that team is composed of uh, Pastor Scott, uh, myself, our drummer man, Josh Biden, and Karen Allen. Are you out there? You got Karen Allen. Okay. In our last meeting... Uh, the question was posed, who would like to preach on giving? And uh, I, looked over at, I looked over at Karen, and I didn't think she was going to do it. Josh has already preached several times, so uh, I reluctantly raised my hand, knowing that Scott would never preach on giving. Preachers do not like to preach on giving. In the former church I came from, we had uh, elders in the church. I was one of the elders. And um, we had a joke that uh, pastors, we pay our pastors, we pay uh, Scott uh, and what's his name? Chris. Chris. <laughs> we pay them to be good, but the elders are good for nothing. So I'm here good for nothing this morning. I'm actually eager to come and share with you on the topic of giving, just as Paul in his uh, comments to the Philippian church in chapter 4, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my difficulty. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. 
So Paul was concerned primarily for the profit which increased to their account. And so I am with you today. It's in my best interest to hear a message on giving as well as for you. A clear, uh, clear aspect of the fullness of the Spirit of God is that he wants all of us to be generous. That's part of the fullness of God for us. In Proverbs 11, he says, There is one who scatters, yet increases all the more, and there is one who withholds what is justly due, but it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. God wants to water you and I. He wants to water you and I today and each day. I'm going to give you a brief outline of my sermon. First of all, I want to talk about an illustration I heard from Tim Keller. Then I want to spend a little bit of time talking about King David, who I believe was, we have the testimony of Scripture that he was a man after God's own heart. And then I want to talk about God's challenge to us, challenge to us in the area of giving. Uh, the Christian life is like a balance, and we have the, uh, do we have the illustration? Okay. I drew this illustration. Um, the Christian life is a, a life of balance, and it's hard to stay on top of the hill. We have a tendency to either go, either go down the hill toward legalism, or we run down the hill toward license. Legalism is this idea that, we come, that comes into our mind, this attitude that we have that we can please God in and of our own efforts. And license is the attitude that creeps into our mind that we can engage in any behavior we want to because we are free, because grace has covered us. The problem, the, I have a friend who told me, is, you know, it's, it's not bad to coast. It's quite okay to coast as long as you don't mind going downhill. And we have a tendency to go downhill on one side of this or the other side of this. Um, if we run down the license side, we end up in wooden obedience. Uh, we tend to focus on a particular behavior in which we excel, and we judge others who are on the other side who cannot excel in that area. And we become self-righteous. On the other side, we just, as Paul says, we sin that grace may abound. So we want to stay on top of the hill. And the one thing I, I observed that uh, both sides have in common, both sides of this hill have in common, is that they tend to not to be honest about their sin. And we have the testimony of Scripture, like I mentioned earlier, that um, David seems to be a character in the Scriptures who I believe stayed at the top of the hill. He's defined as a person after God's own heart. I want to read a little excerpt from a, a letter that we received from a pastor called Steve Brown. He says, Christians who sin, and that's all of us, hardly ever name the most dangerous sins because, frankly, we don't know what they are. Instead, we confess, repent of, and work hard at getting rid of the public, easily defined, and as it were, safe sins. If we work hard enough, we can get a measure of small victory over these sins. I can become less angry using anger, anger management techniques, deal with lust and pride, sometimes by reviewing scripture I've memorized or reading the scriptures, 
and I can stop smoking by using Nicorette gum. The problem is that when I get a temporary victory, I think I'm done. Not even close. And then he continues to write, a dear friend emailed me this morning. I know I'm doing the, the things in the Bible that, I, that the Bible says I should do. And the one thing I've learned is that I know my heart less and less. I really f- uh, find myself plagued with questions about my motivation. Why I do the right things I do is the question I ask myself more than why I do the bad things I do. When Isaiah wrote, our righteous deeds are like polluted garment, he was saying, in effect, that our goodness, our purity, and obedience are often rooted in self-interest, a desire for approval, and it's a cover for self-righteousness. And I got a C.S. Lewis quote for Chris. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote in Mere Christianity, The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people wrong, of bossing, of patronizing, and spoiling sport, and backbiting, and pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. This is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. So, David somehow is, was able to stay on top of this curve. And we have the testimony. Um, we have the testimony, if I go to the right page here. <clears throat> we have the testimony in Acts that you all know of that I've already quoted. Uh, and when he had had him removed, that is when uh, God removed Saul from being king, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Samuel was uh, charged by God to go and anoint uh, David when Saul was still king. And he was a little reluctant to do so because he felt that Saul would kill him. Uh, God encouraged him to go anyway. He told him to take a sacrifice which he did. Uh, then we have this word in 1 Samuel 16. Then, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So we have this testimony that not only was he a man after own, God's own heart, he had the Spirit upon him. And... Um, Later on, he, we received, Solomon, his son, received the testimony that, and as for you, in 1 Kings 9, and as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules. So we have this testimony, a strong testimony concerning David, but we also have the testimony that David was he was a sinner. He stumbled. 
And we all know the story of the matter of Uriah the Hittite and his wife the Sheba. But, but we also uh, know that David had about, bouts of anger toward God. He actually judged God for being unjust. When David was king, he wanted to move the ark from the house of Abinadab to Jerusalem. He had placed a tent in Jerusalem. And if you remember the story, um, it's uh, told in 2 Samuel 6, uh, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to, to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen had stumbled. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had, had broken out against Uzzah, and the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. You know, I got to confess that when I read that story, I feel the same as David. I think, why? You know, he's, he was just trying to help. Uh, but God struck him down because of the sacredness of the ark, and they were disregarding that. And David was angry with God. He, he was angry with God because God judged Uzzah. David was also uh, a man who gave in to his fleshly appetites. You know, David was 39 years old when he was officially anointed king of Israel, and he reigned 40 years. The first seven years was in Hebron, and the remaining 33 years in Jerusalem. In Hebron, we're told that David had seven sons by seven different women. When he moved to Jerusalem, he had nine more sons by a few other wives, and even more by concubines, and to say nothing of his daughters. So there doesn't seem to be an explicit prohibition against old, in the Old Testament against bigamy. The only passage that comes to my mind is where God describes the marriage relationship in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, there was a whole lot of one flesh going on in David's camp. Um, and somehow, I, you know, I just think it's wrong. You know, I can't handle one wife, let alone. So, and indeed, as you read the story in the scriptures, it causes David a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. But in spite of all this, in spite of the fact that David is a sinner, he's described as this man after God's own heart. And in Psalm 51 uh, and Psalm 51 was written, as you know, after David or after Nathan came to David and confronted him with his sin in the matter of Bathsheba and his sin against Uriah. He says in verse, and I want to highlight, we think we have the, we don't have the whole passage. Okay. Um, we have the whole passage here, and I encourage you to read it when you have time. Psalm 51. Uh, I just want to highlight the first and fourth verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to the abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Well, I just, a few observations here. David quickly and fully acknowledges his sin before God. He, in essence, comes clean. He pleads for God's mercy and cleansing. And he has this attitude that sin is personal. It's a personal offense toward God. You know, obviously, he sinned against Uriah. He sinned, I mean, he did commit adultery with his wife. He did get her pregnant, and he did try to cover it up by killing him. So you would say easily that he sinned against Uriah. But David goes a little further. He, he, he reckons in his heart that he has sinned against God, and that God takes it personally, and he takes it personally. You know, in my sin, when I sin against my wife by becoming resentful, I don't often like to consider that, that I'm really sinning against God. But he has this attitude. So this is a hallmark mindset of a person after God's own heart. But there is another mindset that David has that uh, is brought forth in the reading that we read from the top. It's a prayer that David prays when he is come before the Lord and offered an offering for the building of the temple. Um, David uh, called on the people of Israel. He made, well, God came to David and David wanted to build the house of the Lord. And God said to David, if you recall, you won't build it because you're a man of bloodshed. Even though he's a man after God's own heart, he's a man of bloodshed. And he says, you aren't going to build it, but I'll let your son Samuel or Solomon build it. So David did the next best thing. He gathered together all the people and asked them to give. Give toward the project, this large building fund, if you will. And David himself gave personally to it. We're told in the scriptures that he gave, of his own accord, 300 talents of gold. Now, a talent's about 75 pounds, okay? At the current value of gold, that's a gift of $6.7 billion. Billion with a B. This is his own personal gift, okay? And then it says, he said he gave about 7,000 talents of silver. At the current value of silver, that's another $186 million. So I would conclude that he was fairly committed to this building project. Um, and, you know, um, God, well, I, I must say that, I must say David was the IRS, the Israeli Revenue Service. So we need not be too impressed by this because, you know, all the money that came to Israel really flowed to him. So, but... Still, it was a very generous gift, and then he prays this prayer, which I'm going to read again. It's in 1 Chronicles 29, 10 through 16. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in the heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now, our God, we, we, we give, thanks, give you thanks and praise your glorious name. 
But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance we have provided for the building, building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. Well, just a few observations here. David acknowledges, first off, that everything belongs to God, and that he, in offering, is just simply giving back to him what he has already provided as a way to honor him to honor God's provision. David is, not only, uh, David is not only mentioning that material possessions belong to God, but that all of his personal achievements, his talents and abilities have come from God's hand as well. Indeed, all things are in God's hands and are used at his discretion. So therefore, in light of the fact that apart from the filling of the Spirit, we will not remain in this balance at the top of the hill. We will not have the attitudes of David towards sin, toward his own personal sin, and toward his position and his possessions unless we're filled with the Spirit. God comes to us and offers us this challenge found in Malachi 3, 6 through 11. For I, the Lord, do not change, Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So, you know, I don't know of anywhere else in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, everywhere else in the scriptures we're challenged not to test the Lord. But the Lord comes to us in this passage and he says, test me. Give me, trust me. And he says to us that he will bless us if we honor him with the tithe. So I, uh, because, because I feel like Dave Ramsey can effectively speak to the issue of tithing, I want to show you this video clip from his radio show where he answers the, uh, a question on the topic of tithing. So if you'll cue that up. Nicole is in California. Currently we're putting about $2,000 a month towards debt. If we start tithing, that cuts down what we could put towards debt to about half. What do you suggest we do? 
Well, the people that ask about tithing, tithing is a tenth of your income. The word tithe in the Hebrew literally means tenth, um, are typically evangelical Christians or Orthodox Jewish. And those are the two groups that tithe uh, according to the teachings of their book, our book, the Bible. And so um, I'm an evangelical Christian, so I tithe. I give a tenth of my income to my local church. And um, that's what she's asking about. So where would you put that in order of priority? Well, number one, we start with the idea that God doesn't need your money. For that matter, the church doesn't need your money. So why does God teach us to give a tenth of our income? Because it's good for us to learn how to be givers. And generous people are just much more attractive than selfish people. And so your baseline starting point for your generosity, for those of us that have a faith walk like that, is a tithe, a tenth of our income. And so that would lead us to believe not to make God love us more because he loves us anyway. It's not performance-based Christianity. And it's not a thing, some kind of toxic thing or something like that where you think God's going to give you money because you gave him money or some kind of that, not that garbage. But... It is simply, I'm learning to be generous because generous people have a better life. That's really what God's telling you to do. And so he's not going to be mad at you whichever way you do this, Nicole. Um, I'm, I, I feel confident that Scripture teaches us to give our tithe off the top before we do anything else. And then we just work out our, our plan after that, which would lead me, in your case, to you know, lower the amount that's going towards the debt and increase your income to a full tithe. But we're not doing that out of performance base. We're not doing it out of a guilt trip. We're certainly not doing it because Dave Ramsey said to do it. That doesn't make any sense at all. But you're doing it out of the understanding that your heavenly father is crazy about you. And he says, hey, kid, when he's looking at me, hey, kid, when he's looking at you, you're my son, you're my daughter, here's the best way to live. And if you believe all those things about him, then you would do what he says to do because he's a great father. And so based on all of that, I tithe before I do anything else. And that would be my suggestion and the reasoning behind my suggestion, which is actually way more important than the actual suggestion. Now, Here's the other thing I've discovered in 30 years of working on these budgets with people, including my own, is that there's never a zero-sum game, meaning it's never as simple as, I can put $2,000 a month towards debt. If I tithe, I can put $1,000 a month towards debt. That's acting like there's only one variable in this budget. Oh. So you could have a $600 car payment that you need to sell. You could be not working much and you've got some overtime available to you that you need to pick up. You could still have eating out in your budget to the tune of five or six hundred bucks a month. I don't know what all's in your budget, but I do know that these aren't the two only two variables in your budget that you can adjust. And so I'm going to start with the premise that my Heavenly Father loves me. He says for me to give because it's the best way for me to live. And as an evangelical Christian, I'm going to follow that teaching for those reasons. Because it's going to turn out best for me because of the instruction and the source of the instruction. 
So he speaks clearly to the issue of tithing. And I just want to say that most, I think we have a lot of generous people here. And we're grateful to you. Uh, just a word of personal testimony that I'm throwing in here. Um, Mary and I, early on in our marriage, you know, we have abundance now. God has blessed us richly. And, but that was not always the case. We started out as a struggling couple with two, two young children. And I didn't make much money. And Mary and I decided that we would tithe. And, you know, I've heard, heard somebody come to a preacher and say, well, should we tithe off the net or should we tithe off the gross? And Mary and I decided to tithe off the gross. And God has richly blessed us. We have an abundance today that is beyond my imagination. God brought it in different ways, different ways we never anticipated. But we made a commitment, and it was a couple's commitment. It has, it has to be a couple's commitment. And so I just want to say, I want to piggyback on uh, something Chris has said in the last few weeks concerning the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, two things happen. First, to unbelievers, they're converted. And to believers, they gain courage and become emboldened. My question to both you and I is, are we willing to be courageous and trust God in the matter of tithing? You know, I know a tithe, you're not, Larry, a tithe is a lot of money. Well, I know exactly how much it is for you. It's a tenth. Um... I would encourage you to begin at any level, but I would encourage you to tithe. I don't want to back away from the, God, the promise of God that if you make this commitment to him, if you decide you can trust him, he will bless you. So that's all i got to say about giving.